a bunch of trashy daydreams. Hi, should I just like start this off by talking about the the plot of Martyrs? Yeah. Horribly abused as children, Lucia and Anna bond as friends. Years later, Lucia murders the family she thinks abused them. Anna helps clean up the gore, but Lucia commits suicide. Anna discovers an elaborate dungeon beneath the house. A black cloud team arrives and chains Anna in a dungeon where she is tortured beyond recognition. Mademoiselle, an older female leader of the cult, tells Anna that her group is looking for a witness to the afterlife. They believe that undergoing vast suffering may allow a martyr to glimpse the afterlife. So far, their female victims have not been able to give them the answers they seek. Anna, after being flayed alive, is asked what she has seen. She whispers something in the ear of Mademoiselle who commits suicide. What'd you think about this movie? It's it's hard not to have a lot of thoughts about this movie. I mean, I, I saw it probably 10 years ago. I think when you still had to order a DVD or maybe you could torrent it, but I have a DVD of it. Uh, and then I rewatched it today on Tubi where it's free. And it's like an extremely bizarre experience to be watching this, you know, utterly horrific kind of medieval torture film and then have it interrupted by like Flonay's ads and you know Sirius XM and, and then like the torture resume. <laughs> so I had a lot of thoughts about that. And also, you know, it just sent me on this not quite a rabbit hole, but like this uh train of thought about, you know, I think a lot of people have written about these new French extremity films being a response to the Iraq war, right? And the idea of having, you know, black sites and like, you know, the US and its allies like torturing people in secret locations, which is exactly what this film's about. But it made me think also, remember the whole uh, freedom fries and like the whole thing, how like in the Bush era, the kind of American jingoism turned against France, I guess, because France like wouldn't support us in the invasion of Iraq, at least mm -hmm. at the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so like Tony Blair and Bush were like clones basically, but then Sarkozy was you know, sort, sort of opposed to it. Um, but it made me think that like somehow the burden fell to France to represent in some artistic sense, just like how horrific this era was, you know, or like, you know, the US made war films at a certain point, but the idea that France like particularly started making these like incredibly brutal, you know, ritualistic and just like deeply religious torture movies I think is totally connected to that and like maybe whatever it was in French culture that recoiled at knowing what you know the U.S. was about to unleash on the world uh somehow like really comes through in martyrs especially you know with whatever it is now 15-20 years of hindsight and I don't know it also made me think that you know how at that time like in the early 2000s there were all these like new atheist guys like, you know, Sam Harris and uh, Christopher Hitchens and Dawkins, mm -hmm. like all those people who had this like terror of Islam writing, like kept talking about is this like, you know, medieval fanaticism that tortures people for blasphemy or whatever. Uh, well, of course, like the US is doing exactly that, you know, in the sense that a movie like Martyrs really is a rebuke to the idea of this sense of like a new atheism, right? Because they sort of are, 
you know, this cult and martyrs that is torturing, literally torturing this woman in a basement are ambiguously atheistic, right? They're like sort of atheists, but they want to see if they can create a martyr or see if they can find someone who can either like prove them wrong, like prove that God does exist, even though they don't want to believe it, or almost like achieve a kind of secular enlightenment, right? Or like reach something divine that doesn't require religion, even though the idea of martyr martyrdom is fundamentally religious, I think, right? I mean, maybe there's like an ancient sense of it that predates our understanding of, you know, saints or, or um, you know, the passion of Christ or Joan of Arc or like, you know, that there is a version of it that's older than that. But I think the way the movie Martyrs itself presents it is like these kind of supposedly atheistic people are just totally regressing to the most extreme form of medieval torture. I couldn't help but think that literally on the days when they were shooting that movie, you know, Americans were torturing people in like hidden locations, like literally all around the world. And I also think it was a response to, it was a response to the late nineties horror movies of America, like Scream, where torture porn was becoming, like it didn't have a means to an end. You know, those movies made a lot of money, especially when you think about something like Scream. And here I feel like they're trying to make, um, they're trying to make a statement about the bourgeois family life. Cause even in the beginning of this movie, they go into this like very perfect family's home. They murder everybody for quite a while in the film. You think that, Oh shit. Like these girls just like killed an innocent family for no reason. Like, you know, they're just crazy. They're, you know, have no idea what the hell is going on. And then it, the, the tone of it changes where you realize that the suburban home is actually a gothic castle. And in the basement is where all of this torture takes place. And even when you like walk into the basement, there's all of these actual real life photos that I remember seeing from different gore websites from you know the early aughts. They're in the hallway and they're lit up almost like a movie marquee. And this character goes and finds another girl who's being trapped there and tries to help her. And she's just like tortured beyond belief. And that's when this other group comes in and there's something about them that's like very systematic. They must seem like a business and that they're there to, in some way, it almost seems like they're trying to monetize martyrdom and try to figure out like what what it is and how to get to that place and how to make it into like a consumer product that I think that's like where they're retaliate against kind of the frivolousness of a lot of American films but it's just weird to watch it now because I think we've already past so much like real life torture that we've seen i feel like a lot of stuff in this movie as edgy and awful and transgressive as it is i could totally see this being in the next uh episode of american horror story or something like that and I, I still think it's a very effective movie but there is something about it that just felt like a little bit dated to me and i i think in general the the new french extremity which i really loved when it came out i was really just enamored and blown away by it definitely 
at this moment feels very earnest and sincere. I think I think that's right. And I think also, you know, when you're talking about the sense that like they're almost like a martyrdom factory, <laughs> right? They're trying yeah. to like mass produce martyrdom. Part of what's cynical about it, and I think deliberately so on, on the uh, filmmaker's part, is the idea that, you know, historically the way we understand martyrdom is like someone dying for a greater cause, right? Or like dying for their beliefs or dying for their testament or, you know, wh whether or not you believe in it as like a real thing, there's like some honor in, you know, Joan of Arc being burnt at the stake for mm. her beliefs, right? Like almost everyone can resonate with that image as, you know, whether or not it's crazy, at least being a form of some kind of dignity. Whereas the idea of being martyred in this movie solely for the sake of martyrdom like where there's no other belief it's just like can we martyr you because we want to it's almost like a life hack we want to like use martyrdom as a way to find out what happens after death for our own good i think that kind of really deep cynicism is almost a rebuke to the cynicism of something like scream right so something like scream you know, is cynical in the classic postmodern way where like everything's a reference and everything's like a joke about something else. And even, you know, in the movie, the real death is also, you know, horror movie reenactment death and on and on and on, right? Uh, you know, which is interesting, but is cynical in that regard. And it's also just a very profitable film as well, which I think says something bigger about the culture at large that's not actually in the film, but within the success of the film. Yeah, right. And the sequels are referred to the first one. You know, it's sort of mm -hmm. all fan service. It's like a movie for fans that's also about fans, right? right. Uh, whereas Martyrs is definitely not that, right? It's a movie, I guess it has like some fans, but it's an extremely alienating movie. You know, it's a cult movie, not a populist movie. Uh, and the experience in it is deeply traumatic. I mean, it's sort of not played in a tongue-in-cheek way at all. But I think like you're saying, there is still something cynical in that it's like, you know, a disenchanted West, like looking for access to something greater. And the only way that it can find to do it is through like corporatized torture. Like it's not even, I mean, it is a kind of ritual, but it's not like ritualistic torture the way we would imagine something in the Middle Ages, right? It's like done in this very almost uh, medical sense. I, I don't know. It, it sort of made me think of, you know, in this interview with Lindsay, Lindsay Lerman, we talk about Bataille a little bit. Uh, you know, it's something I like to do. Like, I would never do this if I were teaching or writing about a philosopher, but sometimes when I'm just thinking about philosophers, I like to almost make up my own idea about what I think they mean, <laughs> which I, I know is somewhat like intellectually irresponsible, but, but I also think is, is very productive. It's, you know, it's imaginative. It's funny because prior to talking to Lindsay about Bataille, I assumed that his theology and his philosophy and his way of thinking was like maybe encompassed within a movie like Martyrs. And we get into this in the interview. I actually don't know too much about Bataille outside of his fiction and knowing that like a lot of films and a lot of aesthetics about like S&M and have been incorporated into his worldview, but I'm not really sure why. But I have to say, I it, it was incredibly refreshing to speak to Lindsay and talk about his philosophy and realize that it is, in fact, actually something much more expansive and liberating, that it encompasses things outside of this kind of transgressive horror. It's 
much more nuanced, prismatic. And if you want it to be, I think a lot of his ideas are incredibly tender. I think so too. And, you know, I was thinking about the sense of, I think what he calls the accursed share, right? But this idea of like waste or excess or a remainder, you know, something that's kind of above and beyond a transaction, right? Or like some kind of like extra energy that gets generated. And maybe that that's one concept within martyrs is sort of like within this purely materialistic transaction of this torturer, you know, torturing this prisoner, basically. Is there something extra that comes from it, right? Is there a kind of note of the transcendent or the divine that comes from this transaction that's greater than the sum of the parts or not, right? And I think the film, you know, sort of ends in this very interestingly ambiguous note of like, was the whole thing wasted or not? And I guess even the word waste, you know, most of the time we view as a negative thing of like something was didn't serve its purpose, right? Or, or sort of didn't come to fruition. But I think the way Bataille talks about it is more that that's like a celebration of life, right? It's a celebration of having the capacity to like throw your own energy away rather than to have to spend it on survival, which is, you know, one way of understanding art, right? Or of like trying to do something within this material world that has some kind of larger potency or, or like suggests the possibility that there's something beyond this, even when you're not trying to claim that you can find out what it is, right? And I think that feeling of like pouring out energy, whether through violence and suffering, you know, or, you know, masochism or through art, which is a kind of masochism, seems like the crux of what we were getting at, you know, both in terms of the way we were thinking about the film, whether or not that's really what the film is talking about. Uh, and like certainly in our, in the discussion that we had. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great way to to put it. Yeah, it's funny when you th when you think about the end. I guess on a cinematic level, I liked it because in the end, it becomes clear that there is no afterlife, there is no union with God, and there is no ascendance into heaven, which I believe is what this this group of people is doing by torturing these women. It's almost purely aesthetic. It's all about getting that iconic image of a woman in just complete, um, I don't even know what you would call it, but like past the point of pain and torture into this like state of ecstatic bliss, which for a horror movie is definitely interesting and, and definitely totally compelling, but also, I don't know, there's just something about it that ultimately just feels so dated. We've seen so many images of dying online. Like I just think about how many I've seen today from the Ukraine war. And this is also something that we get into in our conversation with Lindsay, but just the, um, the idea of transgression and transgressive art no longer meaning what it used to mean and no longer having the, the importance that it once had, especially the idea that I get from listening to Lindsay talk about Bataille is that it's just... It's something so much more bodily. It's so much more connected. It's so much more nuanced. In a weird way, like I had no idea that it was as psychedelic and as fun of a way of looking at life as it is. And in fact, has very little connection to sex and death and, and, and waste as in shit. He just almost uses those, those ideas as, as ways to... Um, 
kind of shock you out of your complacency to think about ideas that are actually much more uh, life-affirming. I think he sees those things as life-affirming. That's what I mean. It's, yeah, it's sort of like he does talk about shit, shit but not, uh, it's almost a kind of paradox, I guess, that it's like, is waste, but in his conception of it, isn't wasted, right? It sort of has a value that uh, most people either just don't see or deny. You know, and it does seem like those, you know, French movies at that time, so I guess it's really like the first decade of, of the millennium did find, it's not exactly a loophole, but like they found a way in to do something that felt truly confrontational and upsetting, right? The way I think martyrs felt at the time. Mm-hmm. Whereas it does seem like horror, even though it's arguably like bigger now than ever, or at least bigger than it's been for a long time, I don't think it's really horrifying, right? If you think of, you know, Hereditary and Midsommar and The Witch and It Follows. Like those films are really good and they're very cinematically perfect. But I feel like there's something kind of resigned about them, you know, that they're just like extremely meticulous and artisanal, but they're not really like frenzied. Like they don't seem like they're really in the grips of something yeah, totally, yeah. totally lunatic the way, the way like uh, certain moments in Martyrs do feel. No, they're in service to the script. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they're like within, you know, they're like protocol horror movies in the sense that, yeah, they're in service to the script such that nothing actually scary is happening on set. Like there isn't that feeling of lingering chaos the way there is, you know, it's like a cliche to talk about the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but like that's the classic example where it seems like, I mean, there almost like isn't a script, right? Or like there's barely a script. And yeah, it's like I mean, what would a script yeah. for martyrs look like? You know what right. I mean? Like yeah. there's hardly any dialogue. Like the intensity is from the performance and from just the complete visual shock of seeing what, you know, the human body can go through and the the depths of depravity people are willing to, you know, victimize people in order to to get to this like higher place. Right. Right. Yeah. And maybe like an aspect, you know, have you seen um, Kill List by Ben Wheatley? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I watched that again this week for for uh, a different class I was doing. And it's interesting to watch these two together because they're, I guess Kill List is a little later, maybe 2012 or so, but like, mm-hmm. you know, within the same five years as this. And it had a similar vibe rewatching it now in that it's like, both has this like kind of extreme and sudden, like very bodily, very unstylized violence but then also has this almost like proto QAnon thing, right? Of like all of these sort of politicians engaged in these like pagan rights with the sense of just this like freakish desire to, I don't know, become immortal or become enlightened. <laughs> and it was, you know, and those are ancient legends, right? It's not like QAnon invented any of that, right. uh, but it was interesting to see that simmering around 2010 and the idea that the rich and powerful are either like secretly desperate, you know, and I guess the cliche there is like all the money in the world can't buy you more time, right? That's the classic, you know, story that always, always comes up or, or, or maybe like as part of the same thing are uh, rich and powerful because they're somehow in, involved in something like deeply frightening and, and violent, right? But somehow like seeing those two movies in the same week after having not seen either of them for a long time, uh, just the images of these kind of very dapper, like fancy European, you know, ultra professional kind of people just in a state of like utter, just brutal depravity. It was just very fascinating in, in this moment. Like I haven't seen anything quite like that since then. 
Lindsay's book, What Are You, actually does that, but she does it, and we get into this very much in the conversation, by locating and living through the cusp moment of our time and finding the interconnection between nuance and chaos and coming out with a much more sensual outlook and understanding of a lot of these ideas that isn't just like about illustrating them through through pain. I think if anything, this is what maybe just another argument for why text and reading is so important because I don't think you can ever get into something as visceral and bodily as you can in a movie as you can with a book such as the one that Lindsay wrote. I totally agree. I mean, because I think when you're reading a book, you are the character. You know, like when you're watching a movie, no matter how viscerally it's made, you're still looking at the character. Whereas to read a book, you know, to even comprehend the book at all, assuming it has characters, you have to really be the character. You can't just be looking at them. You know, so, so in a sense, especially a book like this that is so much about embodiment and like being in the world and sort of being molded by the world and trying to you know, exert a molding influence on the, on the world in return, you totally go through that as the reader. I mean, you sort of, it is almost like a Stations of the Cross or something that like takes you through various steps that build you or, or like break you down into a new shape. You're using language, like you're literally coming to that place from nothing, like no pain, no visuals, like nothing. It's like totally being formed within you and it's just there's something just so much more immersive and and psychedelic about that and I think all of these ideas fit really nicely into the dialogue that we had with Lindsay especially when we get into the uh, style and subject matter of her book which comes out in May from Clash Books who I think have actually been making a lot of a really impressive moves in the indie book publishing world. And I think at its core, what are you is about giving yourself up to the universe, which maybe in some ways martyrs is also about, but it's just very much mired in a reaction to consumerism, to religion, to one-upmanship to horror to genre that in some ways at the time I think was very effective but much less now right yeah and I think you know in Lindsay's book it's sort of like giving yourself up to the experiences that you have without necessarily trusting that there's a divine plan you know that like you sort of don't have to go there and like maybe you can never be sure about that but trusting that there is a way to benefit from what you go through. And there is a way for the things that you go through to not be totally meaningless, you know, or to sort of be wasted in Bataille's sense of the term, but not wasted in the, in the uh, other sense of the term. Totally. And I'll just, uh, I'll read the uh, synopsis of this book to give the listeners a better idea of what it is and what the uh, tone of it is like. Hypnotic, dreamlike, lyrical essays, tell the story of a woman trapped in a destructive love affair with the universe. Her understanding of power, desire, and complicity must be transformed again and again. Addressed to an amorphous you, Lerman wrestles with the forces of birth and death, creation and destruction, 
going deep into the subterranean strata of consciousness and back. Fantastic. Definitely. Definitely does all that. Yeah. I really love this book. I'm super curious to see how it plays out in the world. In my opinion, it's very much the book I think people should be reading now. The kind of book that to me seems to fit our moment perfectly. It's very much like exactly like what I want to be reading now. And I hope that there'll be more books like this in the future that engage all the senses and that that look for answers outside of yourself. I, I think there's something really about a book that feels like the process of martyrdom without the silliness of that kind of status quo transgression that we're just all so used to and, and can see 15 times through one scroll on Instagram. It's, it's nice to, to read something that really fortifies the power of language and really going deep within yourself. Kathy Koja has a, a blurb on it and she's like, she wrote a book called The Cipher, which is a horror book from the 90s, which is one of my favorites. And it's actually something that really got me into the kind of literature I'm into now. And she said, passionate, dispassionate, hypnotic, deadpan, ecstatic, Lindsay Lerman's What Are You? Read It Now, Now. Um, I think that's a great blurb to get from an author who has written these kind of books in the past and really understands the power of this kind of writing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it made me think, Joseph Campbell talks about this idea of, you know, you can look at the Christ's death and resurrection as being a sort of metaphor for dying and being reborn in your own life and like continually sort of like killing yourself, you know, committing some kind of almost psychic suicide so that you can be reborn. And maybe that's something that the book gets at is this idea of, you know, martyrdom for yourself, not for some kind of like external cause you know what i mean like the idea of, sort yeah. of die, dying for some kind of cause feels you know i don't know i guess could be a good thing but feels like a kind of waste in that negative sense whereas the idea of well we'll never know right yeah or sort of only for other people right other people can venerate you as a martyr but you yeah but uh, they'll, but they'll never know if they were saved by it either totally right right i mean that gets back to the end of the movie in, in a way what the book you know really gives you that i think is life-affirming is this idea of like being martyred to your own greater good. Absolutely. And in this conversation, one of my favorite parts about it is that we get into the idea of locating and living through the cusp moment of our time. And we also get into the interconnection between nuance and chaos, which are just totally interlinked depending on how you want to look at the idea of chaos, which I think once again, is is very indicative of how things feel out there, but you can really either sink or swim in that place. But ultimately, I think as an artist and as a reader and even as a writer, it's just fun to give yourself up to all of that and see what happens. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not a historian, but I sort of feel that this country has always had that obsession with nostalgia, you know, like, yeah. especially because this country was founded so recently by 
um, you know, colonizers, you know, who like had this grand narrative for what it is they were doing and what they were establishing in the new world. And I think that like it, it, there was so much baggage that they brought with them from Europe. And there was so much of the grandness of Europe and like of the recent past in Europe that they established in the US, you know, like all the cities on the East Coast just look like European cities. So I kind of feel like there was never not that nostalgia. We might be in a super intense version of it or a more intensified moment. I don't know, but that's just my, that's my hunch, even though I'm not a historian, so. I think also the irony, you know, when you're talking about like European colonists or, or pilgrims or settlers coming to the East Coast, there's a double nostalgia. Cause on the one hand, there's the nostalgia for Europe, right? And in this sense that like, you had the chance to build anything and you just built London again, <laughs> right? Right. On, on the <laughs> yeah. one hand. And then also, you know, maybe this takes hold more among their successors, but then also the nostalgia for the idea of it having been genuinely new once it's no longer genuinely new. Yes. Um, I'm looking it up right now, but I think deep in the etymology of nostalgia is this understanding that it's a, it's for us a homesickness of for a place that doesn't actually exist. Yeah, for the garden, yeah. for the womb, right? For, for some state that you feel you're exiled from, even though all you've known is exile. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, no, okay, I'm not finding it. It would take more looking than I have now. But I think somewhere deep in the deep in the etymology is this understanding that like it's actually it's actually longing for a home that never ever was. Not even just like an, a mythical Garden of Eden, but like something that never was. And it's all a product of our sad, lonely imaginations. Right, yeah. and like wanting to establish some sort of continuity with our past mm -hmm. and keep mm -hmm. these balls in the air at the same time, which I guess kind of makes the last two years kind of fascinating thinking that all of the all of those routines and systems were fractured and you know everybody's mm -hmm. been throwing around these terms that were like there's a vibe shift and I think <laughs> you know, when I was dming with you you were talking about getting into cusp books yeah well I my, my sense is that we're on the cusp of uh, this is going to sound more new ages than I want it to, but like the cusp of a new world. And of course, every day a new world is born. I understand that. But um, like this feeling that there was a kind of huge rupture over the past couple of years, huge, huge rupture and, and also a lot of death, right? Just like a whole lot of people dying, like all of the elders dying. Like, I don't think we've really processed what that means, you know, in terms of any sense of continuity. And I do think we're on this cusp moment where like we're kind of breaking into this new world. And on the one hand, it's exhilarating and fascinating and incredible. But on the other hand, it's terrifying because we know that like these moments are the moments when the snake oil salesmen come out of the woodwork and everyone right. is really vulnerable and in this shaky state. And uh, you know, this is like when new religions are established and there's cults everywhere, you know, like just these times of great uncertainty cusps that, I don't know. We just have to live through it. I think people at this moment want more sweeping solutions. Like they, like any kind of small fragmented change starts to feel like chaos and people start going for like the big changes and the big feelings. So they start going for rapture or bliss or even degradation. To me, that's like where the, the change is and, and speaking to people and how people are processing the fact that we're actively engaging in this proxy war that seems to be 
leading out into something bigger where mm-hmm. I already saw the first article today of, you know, another COVID surge happening. And I don't know, yeah. I think all of that stuff together is really like making it not only feel chaotic, but the things that are making it chaotic is what is making people feel safe. Hmm. Interesting. There was a, there was a long time where I, I really fought the chaotic nature of this book and I tried really hard to make it less chaotic and to make it into you know, something more easily digestible. Like there was a while where I thought, oh, this is just going to be a standard book of essays. I'm just going to make it a book of essays. But they, there's all this chaos just kept pushing in and it was pushing in and pushing in really hard. And once I stopped fighting it and I was just honest with myself about what it is I was creating, I had this moment of realization that not just because we're in a moment of chaos, because every moment is chaotic, but I need I needed to accept that we do need works of art that engage chaos and that help us understand chaos because also chaos and nuance are really closely bound. You know, I think that like once we try to deny chaos, then we also try to deny nuance. And then we go and then we start getting like into proselytizing territory where everything is considered black and white. And like the landscape just gets really harsh and cruel, you know, because people are like, I know what's right and you only do what's wrong. Do you know what I mean? Everything gets turned into this like really harsh kind of a battleground. And I I think, you know, in a weird way, that's an attempt to deny chaos and chaos and nuance are their friends or something. So when I finally said to myself, like, okay, I just, I really have to accept this is what this book needs. I understood like there actually does need to be a place in the culture. And I'm not saying that I'm going to be able to occupy it, but I can have one little offering to like the gods of chaos because it's chaos is not just chaos within chaos is all sorts of other incredible nuance. And we have to learn to live with it. Like we can never pretend it's non-existent or that we don't have to deal with it. Like we just will, we do. And those seem like the two kinds of snake oil. Like when you're in these kind of cusp moments, mm-hmm. you have some snake oil people who are saying, you know, there is no chaos, or if there is, you know, it's someone else's fault. And then other people who are saying, you know, we can harness the chaos for our own good, right? Or we can profit off it. Or if you join our cult, you know, you'll come out yes. the winner of the chaos. And it's exactly. like the, the role of, you know, real art, nuanced art like that, like, like you're saying, is to say like, we can exist within chaos and and sort of bear witness to it without being totally destroyed, at least not right away. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think that's that's absolutely right. Do you think in moments like this that we're talking about where you both have chaos and nuance, which to me, I think they do go together because in some ways they cancel each other out and they make things mm. bearable and understandable and they give chaos an aesthetic outside of it just being like, distortion and blur and you know just endless feedback but what I find to be interesting that I I'm beginning to feel happen now and maybe I sound new agey now because I I can't say that I have any like any solid evidence of this happening but it seems like because the culture is shifting so dramatically now we've had so many cataclysmic changes that are so irrational that they seem to lock us in sync. And now people are doubling down on tradition. And I can't tell if it's just like 
an aesthetic thing, like people are calling themselves trad on social media, or if it's mm-hmm. something that's actually happening. Have you felt anything like that? I feel like your book isn't, um, I wouldn't say it's religious or overtly spiritual, mm-hmm. but I definitely think it barters in a trade of that territory. Hmm. Um, well, I mean, I think in terms of like, you know, just my experience of what this moment is like, I was thinking just the other day that like, as I'm getting together with more and more of my friends and people I really haven't seen much over the past two years because, you know, of isolation and chaos and, you know, just everything that's gone on, I'm seeing these people more and I'm realizing that people are kind of falling into two camps. It's like the people who in the past two years, they, they really dug deep and like they understood that what was happening is that like everyone's essence was being revealed and they needed to confront themselves and wrestle with their demons and their egos and see what they could do with their lives. And then there's the other camp, uh, which is people who are um, kind of, I think, paralyzed by the trauma of the past two years. And I do mean trauma in a pretty real sense, like not just the way that it gets like thrown around way too casually on social media, you know, like um, I, like I, you know, like my coffee order was wrong. So it's right, trauma. Right. No, this um, is like, I, like, I lost my job. I can't support my right. family trauma. Yeah, exactly. Like all, all these people I know died and I don't have any way to grieve them, all that kind of real trauma. Um, the people who are, I think, kind of tragically like stuck and paralyzed by that. Um, I don't know what's going to become of them, you know? So I definitely see these two um, broad possibilities, but then in terms of like my book and religiosity or spirituality I don't know I I had no I really had no roadmap when I was writing this book and so you know what emerged is just what emerged and I think the like I was saying to you guys the way that I consider it a pretty crazed (laughs) psychotic attempt to communicate directly with the forces that animate us and to get past or behind or through the person to the forces. I mean, that's always going to have kind of a weird spiritual ring to it, but that definitely wasn't my intention. It's just, it's just what emerged, you know? Yeah. And would you consider it a cusp book? Yes, for sure. I think with every, everything I create, I, I, I die as I'm creating it. And I, and then I, I sort of give birth to myself again through the creation process, but you know, that sounds that definitely sounds pretty strange. Well, but it's like the person who hasn't written the book has to die, mm-hmm. and the person who has written the book is born. I mean, there's sort of no way around that if if you finish writing the book, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and in this book too, like there's kind of an um, kind of an intentional murder of an author, you know, or of of a of a position of authorship or the kind of like clear subjectivity that an author is supposed to inhabit in order to write a book, right? Like I am this person with this background and I know these people and I've had this particular kind of experience. It has all of that in there, but then the, to me at least there, I feel that I was intentionally, but subconsciously uh, making that position impossible. What are some other cuss books for you? Because ever since, I, I believe you brought this term up, at least I think it's the first time I ever heard it was when we were DMing about mm. uh, Ice by Anna Kavan. It was one of these things like somebody else had articulated something that I feel like I've also been seeking. 
in terms of like the kind of books that I'm looking for, the kind of art that I'm looking for, conversations or or locations or places I want to visit, or all of these, they're somehow all related to the to this moment and this feeling and like wanting to of wanting to slow down this feeling of free fall. But when I when I think about other cusp books, and I'm curious if if you know of these and if you if, if you agree but like i would say something like the sheltering sky by paul bowles mm. suicide by edward levey um there's this book called the shapeless unease a year of not yeah. sleeping by samantha harvey there's the book mm. of nightmares by galway kennel mm. there's mm. the oblivion seekers by isabel eberhardt um, as I mentioned, Ice by Anna Gavon. Like, do you know any of those books? And does that sound like it's like on the right path to trying to define like what this is as a literary, I don't know, I want to say genre, but mode? I have a lot of trouble t- um, describing this book. I mean, I can talk about particular aspects of it a lot, but I have a very hard time saying what it is. Um, that's part of the reason why the title is what it is. Like, it's not just, uh, it's not just about the subject matter of the book. It's also me asking the book what it is too. I'm certainly working in traditions that I think some of those writers were working in too. Um, and I know some of those books and I like some of those books. When you, when you just now said cusp books, the first thing that came to mind was the passion according to GH, because the cusp there is, it's like, you know, the narrator is on the verge of a, a tremendous internal breakthrough. And so you could almost say that it's kind of a plotless book, the way that I think my book is a bit of a plotless book, even though there is movement and motion. And I do think there's a, a really big difference between the narrator at the beginning and the narrator at the end. Or you could say the cusp is the plot, right? It's like the plot is trying to locate where that cusp is and why why it's emerging, like in a GH. Right. You could probably say that every book is a cusp book, really, right? Because like what the characters or the narrator or whatever the people in the book undergo is some kind of a transition and every transition takes place at a kind of cusp moment, right? Like I was one kind of person, now I'm breaking through to being another kind of person. But I think you're you're thinking of something more uh, more complex than that. I think, right? Mm, possibly. I think I'm thinking of it more like two two genres of books that I love reading in terms of just getting myself psyched up to read other books or even work on my own stuff are grief memoirs and addiction memoirs. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. both seem to feel like cusp books. Right. And right. those are once again, like some of them have really good plots, but some of them don't. But it's almost like, maybe I feel like we're talking about like a more subtle and maybe spiritual way of defining what transgression means, you know, where it's not okay. about like the aesthetic of S&M and, and pain and, and violence. It's more about like coming through some sort of impasse and being transformed. Whereas, cause like in, in, in within fine art, if something is transgressive, the material changes. It's like, if you do a sculpture of the Virgin Mary out of uh, gummy bears, the gummy bears are no longer candy. They start to re- represent something else. And then there's all this, you know, you could, you can say things about religion and whatever, it doesn't matter. Whereas then I think Mm -hmm. when you read a grief memoir, that's kind of the point is that you have somebody 
that's living in a in a moment where the time they spent with someone else who's no longer there so like there's like this huge disrupt in their narrative of who they are but it's not like they go to another place or they go to jail or they go to an island or they solve <laughs> a mystery it's more of like a like a personal transgression and yes that to me seems to be like where something that uh, that I really enjoyed about your book and thinking about the cusp book in general really seems to the word dissolve really comes to mind where it's like mm. maybe like not transitioning yourself by like going through some sort of transformative or painful moment but it's more about dissolving the I and the you and in a psychedelic way incorporating it into like a larger more universal picture yeah no that makes sense to me I know what you mean to me transgression is exactly what you were saying it's not um just like being very bad and naughty and breaking the rules <laughs> And, and like, you know, making that look cool or interesting or giving it like a slick aesthetic to me, transgression is something that does not strengthen the sense of prohibition whatsoever. It's actually an escape of prohibition. Um, and I think that's something that's kind of lost a lot in, especially in the literary world. I see like the talk of what transgressive literature is. And I, I really don't fully understand why um, it's as narrow as it is. To me, it's a, it's a very subtle, but very expansive move that can be made artistically. And um, dissolving seems like a better approach than say like breaking or smashing or destroying. Because I think like the standard approach to transgression is to just like smash, like come up against a limit and smash it and destroy it. But I actually, I wouldn't call that transgression because I think that just again, like strengthens strengthens the limit it it tells you the limit is really real right. and the only way to get around it is to just just to destroy it when it's just going to come right back up it's like a border wall you know and um i think dissolving is more it's it's sexier honestly than just like straight up smashing something down yeah, yeah literally like, and figuratively <laughs> yeah yeah sort of reminded me when you were talking about chaos or sort of you know working with the material and working on yourself till you reach a point where you feel like you can truly accept chaos mm -hmm. is is maybe that kind of transgression because the kind of you know being naughty and smashing things kind of transgression like you were saying is just another way of worshiping the rules but just kind of like from mm -hmm. the other side of the line right but it's still yep. imposing order right it's mm -hmm. saying you know i reject your you know bourgeois order but my order is that i just smash everything Right, but it's still not chaos, right? Whereas chaos is like, I don't recognize either order. And in fact, like, I, yep. I just don't believe like things can be sorted that way at all. And if you can accept that state of mind, even for a moment, it seems like you've reached a higher level. Yes, and that, that that's part of what I had to understand with the creation of this book was that um, I, I was fighting chaos in part and I was fighting the deeper sense of transgression and the ways that I think this book is deeply and subtly transgressive. I was fighting that because I had actually internalized the unspoken rules of commodification, which are all about borders and limits and the avoidance of chaos. Do you know what I mean? Well, tell me yeah. more about that. Like what, like what specifically do you mean? So like, you know, I think many of the unspoken rules of commodification 
are about like making sure that you know how to say exactly who you are and exactly what you have to sell and mm-hmm. doing a really good job of selling it. And the way that that gets into us as artists is insidious and dangerous. And I think it's almost unavoidable that it gets into us, you know, in the same way that like, you know, racism gets into us and sexism gets into us, you know, all of this stuff. And we actually have to like go find it and make sense of it within us and then begin to um, fight it and eradicate it. But it takes a lot of a lot of work and a lot of strength to do that. And not everybody can do that. But this book required me to like look carefully at the ways that all of those rules of commodification, um, you know, there's like a thousand of them, right? Like I only named three. I think there's probably a thousand of them. We could come up with like, we could write a manifesto, you know? Um, But the way that those had gotten into me took the form of me wanting to say, this book should just be a normal book. It should be a book that's really easy to talk about and really easy to sell and really easy for other people to talk about and tell their friends about when like the, I was just lying to myself and I knew I was lying to myself. This is <laughs> not going to be that kind of book. And I'm just not going to, I'm not going to produce that kind of work right now. If ever, I don't know. I was saying it made me think of this idea of like official transgression. I mean, so like I'm far from the first person to say this, but this idea of like uh, extremely hierarchical and often formerly fascist cultures, like, I mean, obvious examples would be Germany and Japan, both have Mm -hmm. this quality of like extreme politeness and extreme decorum. And then also like not only sanctioned, but imposed extreme perversity within certain idioms and within certain districts of the city. Right, right. That that does seem like a bulwark against, I, I don't know if it's a bulwark against genuine transgression, but it's a bulwark against chaos, right? Like they're, from having spent time in both Berlin and Tokyo, I would say they're both, uh, they're two of the least chaotic places that I've been, even though they probably <laughs> also contain some of the most like transgressive scenarios you could discover anywhere. Right. Well, the, and that's the sense of like transgression as just feeding productivity, which strengthens the rules and the pro and the prohibitions, you know, like you can go to Las Vegas, like this is what Vegas is for, right? It's where the businessman can go and have his wild weekend or his wild bender or whatever, or women too, anyone can go. But what that does is it like restores you to go back to the working world as like a really good and efficient worker. You don't just go get lost in Vegas. People who go live there and get lost there, they're a whole different class. Like they're not the, you know, the professional managerial class. This is the release valve for the worker, essentially. Like Carnival or or Halloween or or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't want that, right? Like I, it, you know, it's the same as like, you know, using drugs or something, right? Like I want to be able to take what I've learned from a, a, you know, an insane experience on mushrooms or something. And I, and I want to be able to incorporate it into my everyday life and into my artistic life and like into my relationships, into everything, right? Into how I interact with the universe. I don't want to just have a weekend of binging that like exists as a totally separate thing that like I just don't see the point right because it becomes like some sort of weird death drive where you're like I'm gonna get blackout and I'm gonna spend money in a casino and I'm just gonna get as close to the void as possible and that's gonna be my release but there'll be no I'll take nothing back from it other than you know some pictures and stories 
there's no wisdom from it. And maybe this is like going back to what we were talking about before with this perceived need for people wanting to return to spirituality or religion. From reading your book, I found it to be extremely intricate and ghostly, but it's also visceral. Is there a specific sensation that you want to evoke with it? One problem I have in talking about this book is that really it contains the kernel of like every concern I've ever had in my life, to be honest, like emotional concern, intellectual concern, relational concern, political concern, all of it. It's all present in this book, but it's, you know, it's not, it's not me exactly, right? I'm, I'm playing with what's true and what's not true, but it is, it is totally, totally visceral. And it was almost it was almost a rule I gave myself, even though I didn't really give myself rules. It was almost a rule I gave myself that I, I couldn't just play in the world, in the theoretical world, you know, like it, it had to be very bodily. And I think most of what I write is very bodily anyways, because I can't do theorizing separate from bodies and bodiliness. But I mean, a lot of the sensations that, that drove the writing of it were, were hard ones, um, like, terror and I don't even want to say fear because that's not right like fear is too easy to pinpoint like a sort of seeping terror um, that I've felt like manifest through anxiety throughout the course of my life but really what it is is like this fundamental existential terror um, but then you know the sort of like the the kind of fascinating and interesting and kind of cool and sexy aspects of terror too and the kind of giving into the fall and the emptiness and the void and formlessness um, and seeing that that danger is um, very like productive creatively, but it has to be engaged carefully, really, really carefully and cautiously. But like writing it was a strange experience because I wrote it, you know, over the course of a number of years. And once I really gave into the to the, to the terrifying aspects of it, which were also some of the exhilarating aspects of it, I had to be really careful about how much time I gave it. If I gave it too much time, then um, the rest of my life kind of paid a price. And so I found, I found a balance actually during the pandemic when I finally like did you know a lot of real shaping of all this raw material that I had and it took the form that it has now. Um, like, it was almost a gift that this all happened during the pandemic when like everyone was stuck in the house, me and my partner and my kid. And um, I had to just be really clear with myself, like, okay, you have, let's say these two hours in the middle of the night to work on it. But then the rest of the day, like you really can't engage all of this darkness and all of this shit. Otherwise you will not be able to be there for anybody. You will not be able to make yourself lunch. Like, you know, it's, the some of the impulses that motivated it are the kinds of impulses that could lead me to just like walk into the forest and lay there until the elements overtake me you know? <laughs> i like I that i, I think that visual i'm not ready <laughs> i'm not ready for that yet maybe one day right right and part of doing the work may be warding that off right to say you know on the one mm -hmm. hand it's it's a kind of interesting cyclical mentality because on the one hand you can say I have to ward that off in order to be able to do the work, right? If I'm dying in the forest, I'm not writing the book or making myself lunch. On the yeah. other hand, the, the reason, you know, it's sort of the same idea, but just coming from the other direction is like doing the work is what keeps you from giving in in that other way. Yeah, exactly. And 
and I think by the end of the book, the narrator understands that like that could be a beautiful way to go, right? And like there's nothing wrong with that. But if you know that you're not ready for that, you can't actually you can't force it. You have to like let yourself have more life if more life is what you should have. And ironically, if you do force it, it becomes performative. It almost goes back to maintaining yeah. order, right? It, it's a kind <laughs> <Right>? of like <laughs> pseudo suicide, even if it's real. Yeah. And the, the, one of the main messages that I got from reading the book and talking to you about it and thinking about having written this book during the pandemic and it being like a cuss book is that there is this primal urge to give yourself up to the universe. And through that, you there's something within us that makes us think that if you can sacrifice yourself, you can save yourself. What I liked is that the character in this book is detached in a lot of ways, but she still desires to be connected to the universe at all times. And I think there's something in that friction that is where the momentum happens. So I wonder if that's something mm. that you felt as well in your own life or in the character's life as you were writing this. Whew, yeah. I mean, we've joked about how, like, part of this book, one of the stranger elements of this book is the narrator feeling that the universe is fucking her, <laughs> mm. um, that there's not a lot of say in that. Like, you, you don't, like, how do you, how do you say, no, thank you, I'm, like, I'm tired to the universe, you know? Right, right. You can't really. Um, but, I mean, that's, like, that's kind of a strange and harsh way of putting it. Uh, like, to me, the more interesting element of that thread of the book is learning how to exist in relation to something that you will never have control of like we'll never control the universe we'll never control the emergence of viral disease i'll never control you know what happens to my child you know like or you know my my friends like early on in my life one of my best friends was um, was killed crossing the road in a just a, a freak accident, just walking across the road. And that struck me so, so, so strongly. I can't live my life pretending that I have control. And I've always found that this is kind of a point of contention with a lot of people I meet who are strongly attached to the control that they think they have. And maybe they do in fact have more control than me. I don't know, but I, I can't, there's, only, there's a limit to how much I can participate in that game of pretending that I have control because I know that I really don't. I just know, I just know it, I feel it, that I don't have control. And so I think what's cool and interesting about the end of the book, the, like maybe the last half of the book is the narrator understanding how, despite the fact that there is no control, there is something, there is still power available and there's still uh, the possibility of freedom within the chaos and the lack of control. And that that little bit of, of power, which is not a power in relation to other people. Like it's not, I'm more powerful than you. Right. And I get to stand with my boot on your neck and feel more important. It's not that <laughs> kind of power. It's like a deeper power, like the, you know, the power of like, like the natural world unfolding. Like I'm willing to ride the whole ride, right? It's like, you know, I'm willing to love, <laughs> love someone knowing that they'll die or that I'll die or that at some point yeah. our love will die. You know, and it's yeah. like that idea of, you know, this relates to mysticism, but of like some acceptance of saying, you know, if the universe wants to fuck me and like impregnate me with something, I, I will, I'll bear it. Like I'll take that and I won't deny yeah. that, that message right. or claim that it's something that it isn't. Right. 
that was what I had to give myself over to with this book was just that like, okay, you really want to be an open channel. Fine. You're an open channel. That means you don't really get to control what comes in and what gets out. I mean, to a certain extent you can, and you have to be really finely attuned because if you can feel too much darkness coming in, you might have to shut that, shut that off or like close it down a little bit for a while so that you can keep living and existing and being a channel. But if you, if you want to be open, you're going to be open and you deal with the consequences. You take the risk. Yeah, it reminds me of this. Uh, there's a quote by Bataille, and it's, the need to go astray, to be destroyed, is an extremely private, distant, passionate, turbulent truth. And I think in general, it might be interesting to use Bataille as a lens to talk about some more themes, or maybe even this specific theme that we're on of your book and your personal outlook, because I know it's a, you're a fan of this guy. We've briefly talked about him in the past, but maybe just to get everybody on board, what would you say is the center of Bataille's cosmology in relation to what are you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think what Bataille does for me, uh, it might be very different from what he does for other people, uh, but I think what he does for me is he reminds me that um, no matter how certain we think we are, or no matter how limited the possibilities seem to be, there is actually always another possibility available to us. And uh, it's our job to find those other possibilities, to like actively seek them. You know, that like he was very influenced by Nietzsche. And so there's a little bit of the Ubermensch stuff going on there, this, you know, sort of creation of your own ethical code and morals and beyond good and evil, which of course is taken up in horrendous ways. That's just, uh, you know, that's just a fact. Um, But I mean, honestly, for me, Bataille is just a reminder always that you need to look harder and you need to, and you need to engage every one of your faculties, not just your intellect, like every single one of your faculties. And you need to look elsewhere for other answers and other possibilities because they do exist. So um, the power of his work to me is that he is a very systematic thinker and a very systematic creator, but everything he does is also asystematic and anti-systematic. And I think there's a lot of transgressive power there, the deeply transgressive power that we've been talking about, not just the like, teehee, I'm so naughty kind of transgression. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What is that quote from? That you just um, I, you know, I, I'm not specifically sure. I have, you know, to be totally honest, like, I, I know Bataille is is a fiction writer. I knew, I know mm. that he has his foot in philosophy and theory, and all of that stuff was very vague to me. Like, I never really <laughs> knew specifically like how it was all integrated, and I, so I started, you know, just like researching it loosely because I really wanted to, to to get the bulk of information from you. But that's just like one of the the quotes that I found. But one of the things that I really liked about what I've been learning about him is that like that not everything in life has to be quantified by its utility. And it seems like he would be oh, yeah. very against this optimized life that is very trendy right now using apps to fucking align everything and to make every motion and moment into a into an act of labor. And I think this is the, the the connection to me that I was always missing in the past was I knew that 
you know, I'd read Story of the Eye when I was like in high school. So I knew that he was like, wrote this incredibly naughty and perverse book, but I wasn't able to um, synthesize it into any larger framework or any kind of larger philosophy or way of thinking. But one thing that I have started to like really be interested in with his work that I guess does also relate to transgression is the idea that like waste and expenditure could be sacred. And even the act of writing without knowing that this is going to become a book might be involved in that. And there is something like deeply um, sensual and possibly masochistic about that, that is nourishing while also being maybe somewhat toxic. Completely. Absolutely. Um, He, I mean, he was a really smart critic of capitalism um, and uh, a lot of his work on like socialism and Marxism and his, you know, attempt to defend uh, Nietzsche against, well, from being used by the Nazis um, for propaganda purposes, like all of that is um, not a lot of attention is paid to it. People just kind of focus on the, you know, the crazy weird sex stuff that he did um, in his personal life and, you know, wrote about in the story of the eye, though, as far as I know, he didn't actually participate in the murder of a priest. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the way that capitalism, I think he, he calls it like uh, bourgeois mental forms, right? So like mental habits and forms um, that are bourgeois, that is totally shaped and informed by capitalism and the sort of upward striving and the utility obsession of it. Those are not just dangerous, but they're particularly dangerous because they don't understand the primal need and the sacred need for the release of expenditure or of waste. And so what happens then is that we we lose the opportunity to channel that waste into something, right? So like he has all these, all these examples of ways that waste is actually interestingly or effectively channeled. It's up for debate whether or not he's correct about those particular examples. What are some of those examples? Um, like human sacrifice. Okay. and the Aztec society, right? So he, he kind of makes this, this insane claim that um, the people who were sacrificed actually fulfilled this really important sacred role in society and everyone understood it. You know, like the days before their sacrifice, they were painted in gold and they're adorned with jewels and they're fed all sorts of precious foods and gold is poured down their throats, you know, just this insane stuff. And that like, these are, these were very special, precious people and the sacrifice of them was the channeling of, of waste and excess into something that actually sort of unified and united the people who were there, this sacred witnessing of life being taken. And, you know, super controversial claims for obvious reasons. And also that it would be the winners mm-hmm. of, the, of the match or the game who were sacrificed, not the losers, right? Right. Yeah. And that's really important too. Yeah. But I mean, generally he, he understood that what defines a society is really not its productivity, but how it, how it wastes. And I mean, he was just working from like a kind of simple and basic biological fact that there's more energy on the surface of the earth than we actually need. You know, that the sun is always giving us way more energy than we would ever need. And that there's always excess energy and that the organism needs to find a way to burn it off or let it go. 
um, that there's like there's an opportunity, particularly in humans, there's an opportunity to have this one extra step of like kind of thinking about how we go about expending or wasting. And uh, his concern is that we just don't know how to do that because we're too obsessed with utility and productivity. I wonder if that's a connection you could draw between fear and terror. That you could say fear is is this capitalistic bourgeois idea that you know something's going to waste and it has to be optimized, right? Or it has to be hacked, and we have to you know call in consultants right. to get rid of the waste and make sure everything's being channeled back into the productive system. You yes. know, and fear in that regard is just a negative feeling that you want to assuage. Whereas mm-hmm. terror is this more sublime sense that like you know, like with the sun, you know, that there's this overwhelming sense of waste or, or that on some level, our whole existence is waste. Like why, are, you know, why are we even conscious? Like what's the point of being aware of anything <laughs> on some level? Yes, and it's wasted on us. Yeah, yeah it's waste, right, right, right. Or, you know, youth is wasted on the young or whatever, but, but sort of like truly enjoying the terror that comes from like supreme waste is the highest level that like the human could aspire to. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, it, art is or like writing I mean it is one there is one possibility there right this creation of of absolute waste you know like there's a joke early on in the book that I make about um like barfing into the void or something (laughs) this one comes from real life someone I don't know I had a long long discussion with a with a friend and we were talking about our work and how stupid and pointless it is and he said <laughs> the hell of a conversation you had there <laughs> oh no i mean it was good it was really good it was like life affirming but you know like just admitting yeah, yeah. that everything I'm we kidding. do is stupid and pointless and worthless but um, i said something like well we're just like shitting into the void and he was like no that's too gross and so i changed it to barfing into the void but like i mean really when you think about it of course that is what we're doing right and that's that's what we're doing with our consciousness. Like, what would weep for us if we disappeared from the face of the earth? What would miss us? Absolutely. And I think from how I'm reading a lot of his work and your book and what we're talking about is that obviously nobody wants to die, but it's only death that can give us this feeling of being immaterial or of immateriality which is actually part of continuity. So the idea of shitting into the void or barfing into the void is in somehow bringing you closer to the universe as opposed to mm-hmm. not. Maybe this is actually this is a question for you that this theme seems to come up a lot and it's the idea of the solar anus. And I mm-hmm. first I kind of found that idea to just be like a little bit like comical and like grotesque. I did think there was something fascinating about the idea of him using an organ that doesn't have any kind of productivity in the sense that it's not, there's no semen and there's no womb. There's just mm-hmm. this asshole. And that mm-hmm. like everything that he, he thinks about in terms of continuity and immateriality is in, in some way related to this. The waste that is this book is, this is my channeling of the waste. You know, this is, like this is this is how this is how I'm taking the waste and attempting to make it into something beautiful. <laughs> this is a this is a beautiful puck, bucket of of barf because I just don't see how I have any other choice. You know, if I'm going to if I'm going to be this being, if we're all going to be these beings who are trapped here on Earth and we have the excess energy that we need to burn off, but more importantly 
we have to find ways to do it that actually connect us to the earth like this thing that we're very much we think we're really disconnected from but we are completely completely tied linked into its systems you know all of it feels like the thing i have to do i mean i i don't know if that is going to be insulting to other writers or other artists you know because i do think it's it's precious and sacred and important but also it's it's just shit and i i kind of don't say this that much around other people who create stuff because i you know i honestly don't know how it's going to be taken do you know yeah yeah absolutely but i think for artists it's important to celebrate the irrational mm -hmm. if we lived in a rational world we would just you know we would solve all the problems that we already have the tools to do so but we know that we can't so it's almost yeah. like you have to really put yourself in that place and like imagine yourself dissolving to, to truly feel irrational, immaterial, to take yourself out of the idea of labor and into modes of sacrifice and expenditure. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so I, I do hear you on the fact that I think the artist needs to understand that they are working with irrationality and that there's an important place for rationality that like sorry irrationality actually has a a very important place in our world but i i think we're kind of at a moment of crisis when the mm -hmm. art world has been really thoroughly subsumed or sucked into the the world of capitalism and the world of um you know the professional managerial class yeah such that the role of irrationality uh, isn't understood properly anymore, or it isn't, it's not, it's not even considered anymore. This is why I feel that I have to be careful about like how I talk about art around other artists, to be honest, because I, I really, I do think that a lot of the art that gets glorified or propped up by the business structure of cultural production, do you know what I mean? The, like what's, what's celebrated the business structure of cultural production um, is art that is to me often kind of a, like a manic and neurotic denial of the difficult truths of the world. And one of them is that often rationality fails us. I wonder if one way you could put it, I don't know if, if Bataille would say this, or you would almost need like a contemporary Bataille, you know, talking about more like digital concepts, but, but there's an idea of, acknowledged and unacknowledged waste so that in a sense the mm -hmm. goal or the you know the end, end point of capitalism is like waste on this incomprehensible scale right the sense of like wasting all of like human consciousness or wasting like mm -hmm. the entirety of human ingenuity and imagination and individuality that's never even acknowledged as such right it's just mm -hmm. seen as eliminating waste when in fact the entire system is ultimately nothing but waste yes. and therefore acknowledged waste. And, and obviously within capitalism, there's also the unacknowledged literal waste of trash, <laughs> right? Yeah. But, but mm -hmm. then there's, but then, you know, to be an artist is, you know, a true artist, not a de decorating, uh, like office building lobby kind of artist, um, <laughs> is to <laughs> acknowledge waste as such, right? And to say that actually what makes us human is our ability to waste the same way, uh, you know, Baudrillard has that essay about Kasparov in Deep Blue, where he says like, 
humans can no longer win against computers. But the yeah. thing that we can do is play. But if computers are always going to win, all that that means is we can enjoy losing. Yeah, no, I think that's right. This was, I mean, this was my early work on Bataille um, that I did for my, my dissertation to complete my, um, my doctorate in philosophy was on Bataille's notion of waste, particularly in relation to knowledge. And my, my claim was that um, the production of knowledge is a kind of epistemic waste. Um, that's a, it's like a, it ended up being a more, you know, technical um, set of claims than I wanted it to be. But I mean, ultimately it was that like knowledge creation is the result of play, that like anything we have that might actually be valuable outside utility, you know, value and utility are separate in this, in these instances, but anything that we have that is actually valuable outside of utility or outside of the business structure is the result of play and experimentation. And that right. this is one of our fundamental forms of of waste is just play. And um, it was really strange to write, I mean, it was strange in a great way to write the conclusion for that dissertation when I had a, I had a baby and like a toddler who- Oh, wow. Um, I mean, all, all, all kids do is play. Like they really, especially when they're really young, like they don't, other than eating and sleeping and shitting or pissing, all they do is play like literally all they do is play and that's how they absorb as much information and knowledge and experience as they absorb like it's only play and i, I love bataille for um like making us think about this that's why i know even though i don't know what the reception of this book will be you know i really don't know how people are going to respond to it but that's why i just had to i had to trust i had to trust what was developing because it was play, you know, and play is not always easy. Like play is also where we confront danger and terror, right? There's like those heart-wrenching and difficult, but ultimately really beautiful examples of like kids in, you know, camps during um, World War II, like, you know, kids at Auschwitz playing death squad, you know, because that's how they were making sense of what was happening, right? Like play is, it's not always easy and fun, right? Like play is, waste is not always easy and fun there's 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 difficult and heavy dimensions of it but once i really i really knew that this book like ultimately this was play this was like the hardest most rigorous play i'd ever engaged in my entire life <laughs> i had to just i had to just let it be and i had to stop telling it to like be polite perform well you know think about think about the marketplace think about this think about that i had to just i had to let it be what it was but that's also what I love about Bataille. And I think that's why I found him is that like, he understood that we have this, we have this need to exceed, you know, he, uh, he wasn't just a philosopher. He wasn't just a poet. He wasn't um, just a historian, right? He was all these different things. And, you know, the, I think the people who are really, really trying to be saturated with experience and to really, you know, be, submissive to the universe for lack of a better term they are the people who are going to exceed every single category because how like how else how else right like you're never going to be just the worker or just the husband or just the father or just the neighbor like if you really if you let yourself be reduced or if you start reducing yourself in that way you're in such danger 
It seems like you're in danger either way, right? Because either you'll succeed and then that's a kind of death or you'll fail. And if that's the goal you're pursuing, the failure to achieve that goal becomes intolerable. Yeah, absolutely. But it's better yeah. to die trying. It's better to die exceeding yourself. It's better to, to die like <laughs> overflowing. As, right, you know, exactly. To, mel to melt into the universe because you took so much and took so much of it into yourself that you overflowed. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's it. <laughs>